This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Today we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to read a chapter from my book. And if you didn't know I had a book, well, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but it's a self-published philosophy book, so that's why I don't talk about it that much, because it's the kind of genre that uh, almost no one wants to read. But... Um, I figure maybe the podcast audience might be the 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 key the demographic for that. So, um, and really, the reason why I'm doing it this way, I think, is because uh, I kind of wanted to talk about Descartes, and I kind of wanted to talk about Cartesian dualism. Um, and I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, I already said a lot of what I wanted to say about that uh, in the chapter in my book, and if I do a podcast episode on it, aren't I kind of you know, giving away the content of the book for free. And then I thought, well, maybe that's exactly what I should do is tell everyone, I'm just going to read you a chapter out of my book. And then maybe some people will be interested in reading it and they'll post links. There's like an ebook version and all of that. Um, and of course, patrons will get a discount, you know, just let me know. So without further ado, I'm going to read, um, one of the chapters from unconscious correspondences, which is the name of the book. And uh, it's going to be chapter two, Body and Mind, on the Life and Meditations of Descartes. Quote, The first thing that we know about ourselves is imperfection. This is what Descartes meant when he said, I know God before I know myself. The only mark of God in us is that we feel that we are not God. End quote. Simone Weil. 1. René Descartes is among the initiators of Enlightenment-era philosophy in the West. Arguably, he is the initiator. We study his book everywhere that philosophy is taught. Unfortunately, however, it is my belief that modern philosophers in the Academy have offered us a picture of Descartes that is little more than a caricature. This narrative is primarily crafted around the positions that Descartes takes in his Meditations on First Philosophy. There are a great deal of assumptions underlying the common viewpoint, some of which are not just unsupported but actually refuted by the details of Descartes' life and by his own words. It culminates in the experience common to many undergraduate philosophy students. They are told by their professors that Descartes didn't really believe the things he wrote in his work, and that roughly two-thirds of the work, regarded as his crowning achievement in philosophy, is a lie. All of this is taught this way in order to rationalize away some troubling implications. Many conclusions are indeed possible, and a considerable degree of uncertainty still remains in determining what Descartes really believed. But ultimately, any assessment of, quote, what Descartes really believed, end quote, is a form of conjecture, or, at its very best, an educated guess. Furthermore, his place in the history of philosophy is by nature subjective. But as it is currently understood, it is in some sense validated merely by the fact of its common agreement among scholars. They are the academics, after all, and I am a layperson. These arguments are fine, but not very interesting. Let us take a closer look. Edmund Husserl, founder of the Philosophical School of Phenomenology, summarizes the interpretation of Meditations on First Philosophy that I reference here. This is, in my opinion, representative of the common philosophical outlook on Descartes. Quote, the meditations were epoch-making in a quite unique sense, precisely because of their going back to the pure ego cogito. 
Descartes, in fact, inaugurates an entirely new kind of philosophy. End quote. In the Meditations on First Philosophy, Descartes set out to determine what he can know, and not merely what he can be fairly certain he knows. What can he know with absolute certainty? He dispensed with all propositions that we take for granted, common sense beliefs, religious assumptions, even the senses, and sought to discover the bedrock of human knowledge. And once he has just such a bedrock of knowledge, as Descartes' own argument goes, then he has a foundation of truth from which his worldview can be constructed. So in his meditation, he dispenses with all beliefs about metaphysics, about the existence of the external world, or even about the body. In this endeavor, he came to the famous insight cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. Since thinking is the very process that Descartes was engaged in as he was doing philosophy, the only logical possibility is that thinking at least exists. And since there must obviously be something to do the thinking, then I, that is to say Descartes, the reader, the subject, and everyone else who thinks, can be certain of at least their own existence. But the meditation does not stop there. Having proven the mind, how could Descartes prove anything beyond the mind and its products of cognition? He imagined the possibility of a deceiving demon, or evil genius, a malevolent being with the powers of a god, who might be merely planting the idea in Descartes' head that there is an external world. The mere fact that this is possible is enough to introduce an element of doubt, however microscopic, which obliterates whatever claim to certainty Descartes might argue for. And here, in the story as most philosophers tell it, he somewhat embarrassingly invokes God and his infinite love. Descartes says that this is proof that no such deception could possibly be going on. Rather, to Descartes, it is logically necessary that any being in the category of God must be a loving God, one who would not deceive us. As one reads the arguments for God which Descartes provides, it seems like he simply recycled arguments from St. Anselm, such as the ontological argument, and proceeded via a separate line of reasoning from the one he'd already followed to the cogito ergo sum. It is all presented as highly suspect, motivated in order to establish this God and use this to remedy the doubts he has conjured up. Arthur David Smith in the Rutledge Philosophy Guidebook to Husserl and the Cartesian Meditations writes, quote, The cogito is the only thing in Descartes that is, according to Husserl, of any philosophical significance at all. Almost every time he refers to Descartes' meditations in his other writings, it is the first two meditations that he refers to, those that solely concern the regression to the indubitability of the ego and its thoughts, through the offices of methodical doubt. Descartes' last four meditations do not even get a look in." End quote. These conclusions about Descartes' importance are typical, namely that he signaled a turn towards reason as the basis for all knowledge, and that he argued this point powerfully enough to inaugurate a new age of philosophy. But the latter chunk of Descartes' book, great contribution to philosophy that it is, relies on revelatory knowledge, and this only confuses the issue. Descartes' arguments aren't very good anyway. Take the good and leave the bad seems to be something like the attitude. These prejudices are perfectly in line with our modern sensibilities. The secular zeitgeist that is sweeping Western civilization has eliminated religion as an explanatory framework. These views are all the more common in academia. They simply no longer speak the same metaphysical language as religious people. 
It is difficult to understand for the secular mindset as to how someone could employ skeptical inquiry in order to eliminate doubts and discover the real and certain truth of things, and then go on to declare that the supernatural is the source of that certainty. I'd like to present a case to counter, or at least modify, this viewpoint, and while I believe the thrust of the argument can be made with the text itself, any statement about Descartes' beliefs or motivations demands an examination of his life. 2. Europe entered a new era during Descartes' lifetime. Statement it must be noted as a retrospective claim, as Descartes might well not have noticed this era dawning even as he lived through it. Furthermore, part of the reasoning for historians designating this as the dawn of a new era is due to Descartes himself. We cannot separate Descartes from the groundwork that he needed to launch his project in philosophy laid by the Aristotelian tradition and the theologians and philosophers of the Middle Ages. Descartes, as he was born in 1596, would be writing at a time when Europe was overcoming several long-standing structural problems, as well as tragic calamities. The social fabric had been on a centuries-long and painful path of recovery following the breakup of Rome, and had finally begun to emerge in the previous centuries into something resembling economic or social advancement. All improvement on the large scale happens in fits and starts, but Europe on the whole was on the mend. In terms of the work being done in the arts and sciences, Descartes' era heralded the escape from centuries of cultural stagnation. On the other hand, there were the depopulation events caused intermittently by the Black Death, which destroyed a third of France's population since it had begun in the 1300s. France was just beginning to heal, but this would unfortunately be greatly slowed by the advent of the Hundred Years' War. For the average person in the 1500s, just before Descartes was born, the most common habitation was still the thatched hut. Aside from the wealthy, many lived in houses with dirt floors. There were large metropolitan centers of activity, like Paris. But unlike today, the majority of the population lived a rural existence. People in Europe bathed, in general, about once a year. Most people subsisted on bread and stew for their daily meals, oftentimes just letting leftovers in the pot accumulate, sitting at room temperature until more ingredients are added for the next meal and the entire thing is heated again. Food matter could sit like this for days at a time. People were certainly religious in a way that the modern mind cannot comprehend. One result of this, due to the Protestant Reformation and the reaction against it, was that sectarian violence between Protestants and Catholics was common. It was often intranational or even intra-communal. The day-to-day -day violence didn't always involve armies forming lines and marching to battle. That did happen, to be sure, but more often sectarian violence occurred in the form of instrumental violence, such as Protestants attacking Catholics in their own towns in revenge for the crimes of Catholics everywhere, or a Catholic murdering an official who he believes to be a heretic, and so on. In the case of France, there was ongoing strife between the Huguenots, the French Protestants during the early modern period, and the Roman Catholic French. Consider the example of the Guise family. Roman Catholics, who were angered by the spread of Calvinism and the growing acceptance of Protestantism. Guise partisans massacred a Huguenot congregation in 1561. Uprisings in the provinces followed in reaction to this event. Many inconclusive conflicts, followed by intermittent compromises and truces, happened throughout the 1560s and 1570s. 
Finally, at the end of the century, the Edict of Nantes was declared, which allowed religious freedom for Protestants in France, and the conflict finally subsided for a brief time. René Descartes' family was from Poitou, the region where that edict was drawn up. His father, Joachim, owned farms and houses in the area, including in Châtellerault, the city that hosted the negotiations, and Poitiers. This region was controlled by the Protestant Huguenots, and Châtellerault was a Protestant stronghold. Descartes' family was Catholic, and fortunately for them, this period represented a state of relative peace and stability between the warring churches. If his family fell to sectarian tension in Poitou, Descartes would not have known it, at least not natively. He was born in La Haye, some ways north from his family roots near the coast of the English Channel. Nevertheless, it is improbable that he did not experience the religious conflict in some fashion in his youth, and he would visit Poitou regularly, even early in life. In 1606, Descartes was sent to the Jesuit college at La Fleche. The kind of education they received in Descartes' class is described below. Quote, at La Fleche, 1,200 young men were trained for careers in military engineering, the judiciary, and government administration, in addition to classical studies, science, mathematics, and metaphysics. Aristotle was taught from scholastic commentaries. They studied acting, music, poetry, dancing, writing, and fencing. End quote. During this time, Henry IV was king of France, and he was a beloved king by many. Relative to the moral standards of the time, this translates into a reputation for having employed bribery over violence. He was a peacemaker and by all accounts genuinely interested in improving the lot of the French peasant, at least to some extent, as he worked toward doing so throughout his reign. He wanted to put an end to the sectarian warfare, and accordingly stability had begun to return to society under his rule. As much as this made him popular with the majority, it embittered hatred from the fanatics. In 1610, when King Henry IV was stopped in traffic during the Queen's coronation ceremony, a Catholic fanatic stabbed him to death. Descartes participated in the imposing ceremony in which the heart of Henry IV was interred at La Fleche. The assassination seemed to have put an end to the dream of religious tolerance in France. Accordingly, violence continued to emerge periodically through Descartes' life. Six years later, for example, when he was studying for his law degree in Poitiers, the Huguenots in control went into open revolt against King Louis XIII. Descartes, from a Catholic family, found himself the outsider, but this kind of incident would only become increasingly common. We can imagine that it would have seemed as though the hope for a political solution to the strife had been killed also. In 1618, Descartes departed for the Netherlands, where he spent 15 months in military service under Prince Maurice, a Protestant. This was an army in peacetime that did not see any combat during Descartes' stint there. Primarily, he studied mathematics and military architecture. From here on in life, Descartes' reputation began to spread among the intellectual circles, and soon he was meeting scholars from all sorts of backgrounds. Descartes then spent the next nine years traveling in northern and southern Europe, and his own account of this period is that he was studying, quote, the book of the world, end quote. As for why he developed such a reputation for himself at such an early age, perhaps the simplest and best explanation is that, by all accounts, Descartes was a very gifted person. During this time, while apparently traveling Europe with no stable base of operations, 
he invented analytic geometry, a method of solving geometric problems algebraically and algebraic problems geometrically. He studied occultists such as Raymond Lowell and became enamored with Rosicrucianism, a form of esoteric Christianity influenced by hermetic philosophy and the esoteric teachings of the alchemists. Descartes at least shared the values of the Rosicrucians. Quote, like the Rosicrucians, he lived alone and in seclusion, changed his residence often. During his 22 years in the Netherlands, he lived in 18 different places, practiced medicine without charge, attempted to increase human longevity, and took an optimistic view of the capacity of science to improve the human condition. At the end of his life, he left a chest of personal papers, none of which has survived, with a Rosicrucian physician. End quote. When he was satisfied with the study he had made of the Book of the World, Descartes moved to Paris, a city with a wild side that offered all sorts of entertainment. He was exposed to lifestyles that stood in stark contrast to the almost monastic picture of a life in seclusion that Descartes was supposedly living before this. In Paris, his hobbies included riding, fencing, gambling, drinking, and the theater. Certainly, his intellectual and cultural development benefited as well. He met and befriended the poets Théophile de Vaux and Jean-Louis Gouet de Balzac. We know that de Vaux took a critical view of religion. He was imprisoned and burned in effigy later in life for writing blasphemous poems. And it is certain that Descartes had been exposed to all sorts of other seditious or novel ideas by this time in his life. After many years of writing in Paris, almost none of which survives, something happened which seemed to frighten Descartes or otherwise repel him from continuing his metropolitan life as a Parisian. A cardinal, who was of a sect that had been founded as a sort of rival to the Jesuits, was impressed with Descartes. He asked him to author some philosophy for him. Specifically, he wanted him to come up with a metaphysics, and furthermore, he wanted it based on St. Anselm. His hope was that Descartes could provide him with something to counter Jesuit teachings. For whatever reason, Descartes refused. Two weeks later, he left the country, at first temporarily, then took pains to conceal his address. Then, he relocated to the Netherlands, which was Protestant-held, and did not return to France for 16 years. 3. Being conscripted into writing a sectarian polemic, with the parameters of his thought laid out for him at the outset, no less, was not something Descartes was interested in. It may be too belabored a conclusion to suggest that he was fearful for his safety should he refuse. It is entirely possible that he simply recognized that the cardinal's demands were the kind of limitation on his thinking that would always exist under the church's purview. That said, even within Protestant Europe, there were some things one simply could not write. As to what Descartes really believed, we might consider what he advocated for. Descartes advocated for religious tolerance and the use of reason, and it is not surprising given the situation of Europe during the time he was alive, which must have seemed shocking to a man who felt kinship with the Rosicrucian values of tolerance and the idea of Christian mercy. In the 1630s, he would enter a period in his life of great productivity, where he produced works that had a lasting impact on all of Western civilization. 
For his contribution, he has been called the first Enlightenment philosopher or the father of modern philosophy. He is often mentioned in tandem with Francis Bacon, who was the other intellectual initiator of the Enlightenment and Western thought, though Bacon is more often associated with the hard sciences. Bacon had already begun his writing career at this time, and in Advancement of Learning, he advocated overturning the traditional Aristotelian assumptions about science in favor of a method that prioritized both observation and experiment. Descartes would later propose the same in his own work. The Netherlands, while more heavily Protestant, was known as a bastion of tolerance in contrast to the rest of Europe. While it is therefore likely that Descartes was attempting to escape Catholicism, this does not mean that instead he supported the Protestants. The Counter-Reformation, the Catholic reaction to the apostasy as they saw it, was well underway. Protestants and moderate Catholics alike had much to fear from fanatical Catholic armies. Someone like Descartes, born to a Catholic family in Catholic-controlled France, would often end up conscripted into their ranks. To recount how badly things were progressing in the early 1600s, it is worth it here to recount just a few incidents of sectarian devolution that occurred in France and in Europe more broadly. In 1615, the Jews were expelled from France. The last of the Protestant strongholds was crushed with the participation of the cardinal who had tried to commission Descartes' philosophy just weeks before he slipped out of the country. All over Europe, the Catholic reactionary movement and the general disdain of all Christendom for the scientific mindset saw intellectuals persecuted. In 1619, for example, the Italian philosopher Lucilio Vanini was burned at the stake for suggesting that there were natural explanations for miracles. In 1624, the French Parliament made it illegal to criticize Aristotle, and a capital offense, no less, for which one could be executed. Given the ideas of Descartes at the time, it is no wonder that he had no desire to return. In the Netherlands, Descartes resumed his work at university at Franeker. He found lodging with a Catholic family. It was during this time that he wrote the first draft of his Meditations. He wrote two other significant works before he would publish the final version of the Meditations, but another peculiar thing happened in 1633 when he withheld publication of his work, The World following the persecution of Galileo. The very thing that Galileo was persecuted for writing, that the sun revolved around the earth, was central to Descartes' own work. Though he was marginally out of reach of the church, it is possible that he still didn't want to be branded a heretic. Another interpretation is that he didn't want the work to be printed only to be thrown into the fire. If his goal was to replace the Aristotelian traditions that were stifling the development of science, then for his work to get a wide purchase, it might be better to wait, in hopes that the church would reverse their decision eventually. During this time, however, he was not idle by any means. In 1637, he published his Discourse on Method, one of the first major philosophical works in the European Western philosophical canon not in Latin, but in a vernacular language, in this case vernacular French. This is significant because Descartes argued that the light of reason provided everyone with the ability to tell true from false by providing everyone with the proper intellectual tool set in a common language for discovering whether a scientific or philosophic view was reasonable, the people would gain the ability to think for themselves. When he published the Meditations in 1641, he dedicated it to the Jesuit faculty at Sorbonne.
It may well have been that he was trying to persuade them over to a new system of thought, one that was still grounded in Christianity, as the Meditations is, but also a system of thought that arrives at the grounding via skepticism. Descartes calls it a methodological doubt, or methodology of doubt. Meditations sparked several responses. Eminent thinkers sent their criticisms. The Jansenist philosopher and theologian Antoine Arnaud, the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, and the Epicurean Pierre Gassendi. All gave their critiques, and Descartes gave his responses. The second edition, published in 1642, included a further response by the Jesuit priest Pierre Bourdin, who Descartes said was a fool. It is easy to forget that during this time a dialogue of this nature between the intellectuals of the day simply didn't happen. As we just considered, the French Parliament was in the business of outlawing textual criticism, and this was on behalf of a pagan philosopher, Aristotle, albeit one whose ideas were widely believed and beloved. When it came to criticism of the church, could be equally deadly also. In light of this, this is a watershed moment for the Enlightenment and the West. 4. It is at this point that we may consider the text in light of Descartes' beliefs and experiences up to that point in his life. The modern account given by the Academy amounts to this. One aspect of the meditations is invaluable, that is to say, the methodology of doubt. In terms of the consideration given to the other aspects, the sentiment verges on pretending that the other aspects don't exist. The most egregious of which, as we have already discussed, is that Descartes says that the only ultimate certainty is derived from a god. But in contradiction to the typical interpretation of the meditations, Descartes gives great weight to the proof of God and the immortal soul in both his preface to the reader and his preface to the faculty at Sorbonne. He makes it clear that the entire purpose of the work, its thesis, is the demonstration of God and the soul via strictly rational means. He writes, quote, Although it is quite enough for us faithful ones to accept by means of faith the fact that the human soul does not perish with the body, and that God exists, it certainly does not seem possible ever to persuade infidels of any religion, indeed, we may almost say of any moral virtue, unless, to begin with, we prove these two facts by means of the natural reason." End quote. Though it is possible to imagine multiple reasons for writing such a sentence, it should make us curious that the philosopher credited with a turn from the revelatory knowledge of pre-enlightenment philosophy states unequivocally that his entire purpose is to prove the Christian God to the infidel. As to who the infidel was, one can be assured that the Catholics of this time considered Protestants the infidel, Protestants considered Catholics the infidel, and many from both churches would have found agreement in disparaging some sects, and certainly when it came to the Muslims or Jews. The fact may be raised that Descartes suppressed his own scientific work, The World, following the persecution of Galileo, and so out of the same fear of persecution, it is possible that he amended the meditations to make them more acceptable for publication. Indeed, he confided in a letter to Marin Mersenne a year after writing The World, but not publishing it, that he, quote, would not for the world stand up to the church, end quote, referencing the plight of Galileo in his reasoning. But this explanation seems to me to be unlikely and in a way contain its own refutation. 
Descartes' earlier behavior was not at all commensurate with the pattern of writing things that he didn't believe. He did not amend the world to force it in line with Catholic doctrine, but rather he suppressed it in hopes that it could eventually be published in full. This would be in line with his Enlightenment ethos and belief in the sacredness of truth. The fabrication of arguments, of which he isn't really in favor, would be inconsistent with Descartes' character. In the past, he chose to censor his own ideas totally rather than misrepresenting those ideas. He refused to write a metaphysics on the orders of a cardinal. Even when appealing to the arguments of the same philosopher as he draws from in Meditations, Anselm, it was unacceptable that the cardinal have final say over the direction of work. It could be said that this is only speculation, but this would only highlight the fact that all the accusations about Descartes' hidden motives are also only speculation. Ultimately, we cannot really know what was going on in Descartes' head. We can only know what he actually wrote. Let us treat him with the respect of assuming that he meant what he wrote. It is said that Descartes doubted as no philosopher before had doubted. But if we take him at his word, we have to conclude that Descartes hardly doubted at all. This is very clear to us if we do accept what he tells us in the preface, because, remarkably, he actually admits to having actually come to his beliefs by means of a vicious circle, which he affirms by faith alone. He writes, quote, Although it is absolutely true that we must believe that there is a God, because we are so taught in the Holy Scriptures, and, on the other hand, that we must believe the Holy Scriptures because they come from God, the reason of this is that faith being a gift from God, he who gives the grace to cause us to believe other things can likewise give it to cause us to believe that he exists. We nevertheless could not place this argument before infidels who might accuse us of reasoning in a circle. End quote. If we take him at his word, then his methodology of doubt is thus no more than a methodology of rhetoric. Descartes believed in his propositions via faith, revelatory knowledge. Where it is easy to be confused is in the consideration that he also held faith that man could know of the existence of God and the existence of the immortal soul by the mind's reason alone. For he honestly felt these things to be true. The rationalist mantra, so to speak, is that if it is true, then it ought to be rational. In other words, that truth is coherent. Descartes believed firmly in the faculty of human reason, as granted by God, and it is thus towards this foregone conclusion that he philosophized. He believed that his arguments in this regard were certain, so long as his readers were, in his words, quote, free from any prejudice, end quote. To suggest that Descartes' methodology was a rhetorical tactic is not to say that Descartes was consciously manipulative. I believe that Descartes believed he was engaging in rigorous methodological doubt. Nevertheless, he confessed himself that he was at base motivated by faith and committed to logical discourse because he thought it was a viable method of spreading his faith. He frames his meditations as basically scientific or mathematical, and he compares his work to geometry on a few occasions. He speaks almost exclusively in the preface about his arguments in a theological context, though as if theology were just such a science. He admits 
that he has not only cultivated his own arguments, but gone looking for others and assembled the best collection possible. Quote, I will say that these proofs are such that I do not think that there is any way open to the human mind by which it can ever succeed in discovering better. For the importance of the subject, and the glory of God to which all this relates, constrain me to speak here somewhat more freely of myself than is my habit. End quote. Given what we have considered thus far, perhaps we can dispense with the notion that the cogito ergo sum is the product of dispassionate, detached logic. Should we not give deeper thought to Descartes' motivations? Why was Descartes motivated to produce the cogito? As we consider these questions, we cannot ignore the theological backdrop of the claim that the ego is indubitable. There is a certain end being served by this evaluation. If the meditations, as Husserl writes, quote, draw the prototype for any beginning philosopher's necessary meditations, the meditations out of which alone a philosophy can grow originally, end quote, then cogito ergo sum is just such a necessary beginning. But the problem is contained in the language. It is a necessary beginning, only because Descartes needed it to be the beginning. His philosophy demands that this be the final point of termination, at which point all doubting ceases. That's the point where certainty can begin, but we should question where Descartes chose to draw that line, which reveals the motivation in full. Descartes settles on the mind as this turning point, which he conflates with the soul. Quote, the human body may indeed easily enough perish but the mind is, owing to its nature, immortal." End quote. Thus, the cogito is not merely a rational starting point from which Descartes later goes too far into religious claims, as the prevailing view holds. Descartes declared it his purpose to prove the immortal soul beyond the shadow of a doubt, and went on to discover just that as the one unassailable proposition. As to why it is necessary for him to do so, one must examine the framework of Christian metaphysics, in which the mind, the ego-consciousness, the psyche, is considered roughly synonymous with soul, and thus regarded as the self. And it should be pointed out, especially given all that we know about the psyche, and the fact that it contains so much which is instinctual, unconscious, or otherwise hidden, and set aside from the control of our executive functions, that setting up the ego-consciousness as the mind is not such an immediate certainty. However, this is exactly what Descartes holds, and what his thought experiment requires him to hold. This is a very significant part of his philosophy, mind-body dualism, although Descartes does not elaborate on this particular point until the sixth and final meditation, where he writes, quote, On the one hand, I have a clear and distinct idea of myself, insofar as I am a thinking, non-extended thing. And on the other hand, I have a distinct idea of body, insofar as this is simply an extended, non-thinking thing. And accordingly, it is certain that I am really distinct from my body and exist without it. End quote. We already know that one of Descartes' presuppositions is that the mind is distinct or differentiated from the body in some sense, the premises of Descartes' argument assume by their very definitions that the mind is that which is coterminous with the self, and thus cannot be doubted by it. 
And just as the mind is distinct from the body, so too is the self distinct from the body. It is not a unifying description of both the mental and physical elements of existence. Again, this is in keeping with our prejudices even today. We experience ourselves as living inside the head and imagine that I am a mind that has a body. Thus, everything is to be doubted. The room, the chairs, the tables, the entire world of sense experience, and even the external physical world, which such experience indicates, even the body itself, but not the mind. But should we find this surprising? The mind could not have been doubted when we consider the axiomatic presuppositions upon which the meditations are based. The mantra de omnibus dubitandum could never have been applied to the mind. 5. The mind-body type of dualism does not originate with Descartes and finds its roots in the ancient world. Like the seeds of so many other fundamental ideas of the West, it was given first by the Greeks. We may look to Epictetus, the Stoic, as one example of this viewpoint. Quote, you are a little soul, end quote, Epictetus declared, quote, carrying a corpse, end quote. Naturally proceeding from this construction is Epictetus's assumption that reason, the product of the mind, and the passions, products of the body, are naturally opposed. To Epictetus, the passions are things to be mastered by the rational mind, lest the passions rebel and take hold of the mind instead. He repeatedly warns us against them, writing, quote, It is this that introduces disturbances, tumults, misfortunes, and calamities, and causes sorrow, lamentation, and envy and renders us envious and jealous, and thus incapable of listening to reason." Or we might recall Blaise Pascal's rather sly argument following his infamous wager, in which he suggests that all those who have not yielded to the eminent reasonableness of his risk assessment, and who have not accordingly fallen down in belief and reverence for God, are merely enslaved by their own passions. For if Pascal has truly demonstrated that belief in God is the only logical belief, and according to Pascal he has done so, then the only thing that could lead you to disbelieve would be your emotions. And obviously, no one can argue that one ought to follow emotions over logic. One might point out, as David Hume did, that reason might be better seen as the handmaiden of the passions, and not the other way around, in such a formulation, the passions direct us and thus motivate us towards a certain goal, whereas reason merely provides the how and is tasked with accomplishing said goal. While this viewpoint holds far more merit, it is still not a complete analysis, since both perspectives set up reason and the passions, virtually equivalent to mind and body, or soul and body, as separate and against one another. One is the slave and the other the master. Whether it is the refined dualism of Hume or the coarse dualism of Epictetus, researchers in neuroscience have shown that this framework is fundamentally flawed. One such researcher is Antonio Damasio, who writes that reason and the emotions cannot be seen as mutually exclusive. Quote, Human reason depends on several brain systems, working in concert across many levels of neuronal organization, rather than on a single brain center. Both high-level and low-level brain regions cooperate in the making of reason. 
The lower levels in the neural edifice of reason are the same ones that regulate the processing of emotions and feelings, along with the body functions necessary for an organism's survival. In turn, these lower levels maintain direct and mutual relationships with virtually every bodily organ, thus placing the body directly within the chain of operations that generate the highest reaches of reasoning, decision-making, and by extension, social behavior and creativity. Emotion, feeling, and biological regulation all play a role in human reason." Damasio's book, Descartes' Error, drew fire from some who accused him of misinterpreting Descartes or giving undue weight to the mind-body dualism. In other words, for failing to understand the narrative as the philosophical discipline has constructed it, and failing to recognize the real contributions of Descartes. I would contend that he understood Descartes better than most philosophers. That being said, his book is largely non-philosophical and is mostly concerned with the questions of neuroscience. So I will do some philosophizing for him. It has become apparent that we can't reliably discern pure cognition from bodily effects originating from one's physiology. With an improper diet, one's gut can stir anxiety. A full night's sleep and regular exercise are proven to regulate neurological disorders such as depression. There are improvements to one's physiological state which can technically be done by rote and have nothing to do with rational considerations or willpower. When lacking in emotional motivation, our ability to reason logically is impaired, which Damasio indicates as one inspiration for his research. Quote, I got interested in the emotions after studying patients who had lost the ability to emote and feel under certain circumstances. Many of those patients also had major impairments in their ability to make decisions. Descartes is operating from definitions that are untenable when he examines the idea of a disembodied mind. His understanding of the mind is completely fictitious and divorced from reality. We don't know if a disembodied mind, such as Descartes describes, is even possible. The only examples of minds that we've ever encountered exist as the result of physical brains, bound up with a particular physiology. Even artificial intelligence, if it ever reaches complexity such that it could be called a mind, would be generated by physical circuitry and programming. Descartes cannot critically examine the concept of a disembodied mind because such a concept has no referent. It is a definition of something that we have never seen, cannot measure, or even describe. It should be apparent by now why the mind must be associated with the concept of the immaterial soul when considering Descartes. The kind of separation that Descartes' meditations tried to establish between body and mind thus represents an example of a dualism. But it is also a warped view of the dual-self phenomenon. Body and mind are metaphysically separated. They are not even properly oppositional, and certainly not complementary. The idea that they are not only separable, but fully separate, is hidden underneath the cogito ergo sum. And perhaps one more prejudice of philosophers is showing here, because this derives from the supposedly logical, valuable section at the beginning of the work where Descartes doubts the body, but not the mind. So this raises the question, is bodily sensation 
more doubtful than the experience of thought. Pain certainly is not less doubtful than thoughts. The senses are far, far older than the capacity for cognition. So while we have no examples of minds without bodies, we have plenty of examples of bodies without minds, animals, or even single-celled organisms, and everything in between, with only physiological instincts, or impulses, acting blindly on sense information. Of course, it would be the mind that would think of itself as the self, for the mind is the thinking organ. Is there anything other than a mind that could think of itself as anything? Perhaps this is what Descartes was getting at, and, of course, this convinces us as rational beings. But it is just a tautology. Is not the cogito, first and foremost, a demand from the mind, the organ that thinks, that only thinking be defined as being? Perhaps the most damning criticism of Descartes' framing of things, in my opinion, is provided by Nietzsche, who is writing in a section of Beyond Good and Evil where he is examining what he believes to be the motivations of many of the great philosophers. I will quote the relevant section in full. Quote, the people on their part may think that cognition is knowing all about things, but the philosopher must say to himself, when I analyze the process that is expressed in the sentence, I think, I find a whole series of daring assertions, the argumentative proof of which would be difficult, perhaps impossible. For instance, that it is I who think, that there must necessarily be something that thinks, that thinking is an activity, an operation, on the part of a being who is thought of as a cause, that there is an ego, and finally, that it is already determined what is to be designated by thinking, that I know what thinking is. For if I had not already decided within myself what it is, by what standard could I determine whether that which is just happening is not perhaps willing or feeling? In short, the assertion I think assumes that I compare my state at the present moment with other states of myself which I know in order to determine what it is. On account of this retrospective connection with further knowledge, it has, at any rate, no immediate certainty for me. In place of the immediate certainty in which the people may believe in the special case, the philosopher thus finds a series of metaphysical questions presented to him, veritable conscience questions of the intellect, to wit. Whence did I get the notion of thinking? Why do I believe in cause and effect? What gives me the right to speak of an ego, and even of an ego as cause, and finally of an ego as cause of thought? End quote. Here, Nietzsche is not only challenging the ego superstition, which Nietzsche believes is merely a new iteration of the old soul superstition, but also criticizing the methodology of doubt of Descartes. Later in the same chapter, he notes that there are many kinds of skepticism that are often conflated under the same label, though they are nothing alike. There is a skeptic who questions and doubts everything out of toughness, who truly has no sacred cows, even skepticism itself, and is therefore making himself harder, stronger, more powerful. This is in contrast with a skeptic who uses skepticism as a crutch, 
thereby making himself weaker. Nietzsche concerned himself with the motivations of philosophers because he thought that psychology was the path to understanding all these fundamental problems. As he says in Beyond Good and Evil, quote, It has gradually become clear to me what every great philosophy up till now has consisted of, namely the confession of its originator, and a species of involuntary and unconscious autobiography. End quote. When considering Descartes' confession, first we should consider that Descartes' theological position is premised on monotheism. This particular brand of theism is a vision of the entire universe as orchestrated by an infinite mind, and thus a universe in which intelligence precedes all. The default state of such a universe, its origins, could only be described as solely consisting of mind. The mind-body dualism of Descartes, where mind is what is more real than anything, even more real than form or material, achieves its zenith in monotheism. Obviously, this mind-body dualism can exist beyond monotheism as it did in the case of Epictetus, before monotheism was properly formed, and in the secular worldview of today. However, just as this mind-body dualism seems to have nurtured monotheism, this monotheism must have, in turn, nurtured this mind-body dualism. Eventually, there was a full realization of this moral principle in Western society, that the natural law of the universe became the mind as separate from the body as a domain governed by reason, and reason as master of the passions. This is the virtue of which Descartes is a champion. However, it is not without its negative aspects. The distrust of the worldly sense experience and appeal to reason as their sovereign should not surprise us from a religion that denigrates the body, its functions and desires, while exalting the soul. It must be clear by now that there are many immediate certainties that premise Descartes' methodology of doubt, which are not certainties at all, but rather the infusion of his own theological prejudices about the self and metaphysics. It is not just that the cogito is utilized as a mere stepping stone to this theological perspective. Descartes' perspective implies the cogito from the very start. Cogito ergo sum did not lead Descartes to his beliefs about the mind. Instead, his beliefs about the mind led him to assert the cogito. So yes, we infidels must accuse Descartes of reasoning in a circle, but let us take an honest view of Descartes. We must not ignore that this circle encloses the entire meditations, not simply the last four. The suggestion that man should humble himself before an all-powerful, ineffable force became more antiquated the further the Enlightenment convinced man of his powers of reason. Thus it is clear that Descartes did not intend to usher in a new era. After all, he still believed in all these old presuppositions and was desperately trying to prove them. He adapted his style of rhetoric to suit the age. In the new way of thinking, even God is proved by logic rather than revelation, and therefore must be subject to logical criticism and proofs. But one does this as Plato and the disciples of Plato, including Aristotle and the medieval philosophers, have always done, by introducing a dialogue whereby the doubts are introduced, then struck down by the arguments that the philosopher agrees with. 
As we read Descartes today, we may no longer believe in the claims about God, but people generally still believe in the presuppositions about the self, even though they were originally justified theologically. Perhaps this is because we find them necessary, insofar as we cannot live without them. To this day, Descartes fascinates us with his ability to provide solid argumentation, albeit for the certainty of the immortal soul, or as we call it today, the mind or the self, as a singular entity or executor which controls the body. If, as Nietzsche said, Christianity was merely Platonism for the people, then was Descartes writing what amounts to merely Christian philosophy for the secular philosopher? More broadly, he represented the next logical step in Christian thinking up to that point, rather than the revolutionary in thought that he is often elevated to in the popular imagination. What is the soul? It is some kind of core of the self that transcends mere matter, electricity, and biochemistry. This concept represents a desire, whether spiritual or secular, to separate what makes someone a self from the material world. But one finds that applying such a framework is on easy ground. For if one decides to rule oneself by attempting to conquer the passions with reason, he will find that he cannot reason without his passions, as Damasio points out. In fact, it is one of his passions that is driving him to subjugate the others, and thus is actually a battle of passions with passions, with reason as the weapon. Descartes, above all, was attempting to do what his passion led him to do, and using reason as a weapon to do it. Did Descartes ultimately want to find a way to broker peace? He valued religious tolerance, and perhaps by leading the way, if in nothing else than in beginning a dialogue, attempting to show the Jesuits that reason could be used to convert infidels, and that violence might yield to peaceful debate. There is a healthy debate that still is to be had about Descartes' meditations, so long as these assumptions remain still to be challenged. 6. The end of Descartes' life was anticlimactic. He must be described as the kind of person who always had monumental events happening around him, though which he generally took no part in. There would certainly be more religious violence as the wheels of history continued to turn, grinding under some millions of souls on their way. Eventually Descartes did return to France, but did not stay permanently. He moved back and forth between France and the Netherlands. He began to find himself harassed by Calvinists in the Netherlands, and eventually he began to fear reprisals by the Catholics in France, who had suspicions that Descartes was not the strong Catholic that he claimed to be. The rumors about Rosicrucianism began to follow him. In time, Descartes departed France for good. He was invited to the court of the royal family in Stockholm to receive patronage and tutor the nobility. The cold was too much for him, and he was taken ill one morning while walking in the snow, and died shortly thereafter. The year was 1650, and Descartes was 54 years old. His papers came into the possession of Claude Clercellier. This man was a devout Catholic, and he began his attempts to turn Descartes into a saint. 
He published Descartes' letters, but he was careful which letters to publish, and he expurgated them if he did publish them at all, and even added his own interpolations to some of them. This view of Descartes enjoyed a brief popularity among the Catholic Church, and Clercelier's efforts culminated in a biography based on his collection of heavily edited letters written by Father Adrien Ballier in 1691. The Catholicizing of Descartes was ultimately unsuccessful, however. It wasn't particularly persuasive to Catholics overall. In 1667, many years beforehand, the Roman Catholic Church had already declared where they stood on this question. Descartes' works were placed on the Index Librorum Prohibitorum, the Index of Prohibited Books, and this was on the very day his bones were interred in St. Genevieve du Mont in Paris. Clercelier failed. During Descartes' own lifetime, there were some who questioned whether or not he was a Catholic apologist, motivated primarily by asserting and defending Christian doctrine, or an atheist, or early version of a secular humanist. Maybe he was concerned with establishing a deterministic, mechanistic, and materialistic physics. Perhaps he only protected himself in his work with pious statements. These questions will never be answered. All the manuscripts and letters that were available to Clercelier and Ballet are now lost. There is now some evidence in favor of the camp that Descartes was an atheist, deist, humanist, or some variety of non-religious. He said that good sense is destroyed when one thinks too much of God. And he told his protege, Anna Maria van Sherman, that her studies of theology and ancient Hebrew were a waste of her talent. Descartes was also known to have remarked that, quote, with me, everything turns to mathematics, end quote. Hardly the temperament of a man given to faith-based knowledge. Of course, we could then consider counterarguments, such as the possibility that Descartes would have agreed with Benjamin Franklin's sentiment, that a loving God would not have granted man his reason as a divine gift, then impeded it by obliging him to spend all his time thinking about the complexities of doctrine. This disagreement can continue back and forth for all time. Let it be enough to say that Descartes' work is a reformulation of Christian doctrine, as it is a recapitulation to the metaphysical positions of Christianity. And there is at least as much evidence for this view as there is for the position that he was a secret atheist, or agnostic, who wished to inaugurate a new era of skepticism. The latter interpretation, based on remarks like the one made to Van Sherman, has won out. Quote, during his lifetime, Protestant ministers in the Netherlands called Descartes a Jesuit and a papist, which is to say an atheist. He retorted that they were intolerant, ignorant bigots. Up to about 1930, a majority of scholars, many of whom were religious, believed that Descartes' major concerns were metaphysical and religious. By the late 20th century, however, numerous commentators had come to believe that Descartes was a Catholic in the same way he was a Frenchman and a royalist that is, by birth and by convention, end quote. These assessments may be right or wrong, but in rebuttal to those who may claim Descartes was totally atheistic, we have the arguments I've presented here, namely, that he would have suppressed meditations, just like the world, if he was motivated out of fear for his own safety. Or, he might have left behind a secular version of meditations in his notes, though it may be argued that such a thing may have existed and been lost. If any sleight of hand was going on, I would argue that the most likely is this. 
Descartes wished to show the faculty at Sorbonne that human reason would lead to belief in the immortal soul just as revelation could, for human reason was of divine origin. Thus, one invests his faith in human reason as he once did in divine revelation, but it is still faith. And the underlying thrust of the argument, the fundamental demand for the immortal soul, is still put forward with all fervor to satisfy the high valuation placed on the ego consciousness by Descartes and his love of reason. We might also consider the early beginning date of the meditations on first philosophy, when Descartes was still young, enamored with Rosicrucianism, living as a guest in another family's home. He seemed to be seeking many things, a life of seclusion, but wisdom that comes with experience of the world, the religious tolerance that would allow him to pursue his God-given intellect in any direction, and the peace which any true Christian of Descartes' stripe would strive for. He wished to undo the Aristotelian understanding of the natural sciences, which had become rigid, yet affirm the Platonic view of the self and the world in the metaphysical sense. The material world was the false world, the world of mere appearance, and likewise the material body is merely a vessel for the immaterial soul. Even if he was not an orthodox Christian of any stripe, he reforged and thus championed the Christian metaphysics. Beyond this, the fact that he initiated a philosophical dialogue concerning the deepest questions of metaphysics, effectively bringing such topics into the domain of reason, is a monumental achievement. Perhaps we must be satisfied with Schopenhauer's assessment that, quote, Descartes is rightly regarded as the father of modern philosophy, primarily and generally, because he helped the faculty of reason to stand on its own feet by teaching men to use their brains in place whereof the Bible on the one hand and Aristotle on the other had previously served. End quote. Eventually, in 1664, Descartes' work, The World, was finally published. And in what would have been to Descartes' delight, a scientific revolution was beginning that was overturning Aristotle. Like all good trendsetters, he was a bit of a prophet. All the same, the world was simply not destined to become the work warranting the inclusion of Descartes' name in the book of immortal ideas. Ultimately, it was the little manuscript that he began as a young man while in self-imposed exile at Franeker that was destined to make a lasting impact. As to whether or not this impact was a triumph or tragedy, it's too soon to say. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.